can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction. Welcome to Football Insiders, the podcast home of Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. We're just a couple of days out from Christmas as we share this particular session with you from the Football Writers Festival held last month. And it's Stephanie Brandt in conversation with Remo Nogarotto about his life in football. Just recently, uh, Remo made the decision not to stand again for the Football Australia or formerly FFA board. So it was a great opportunity to talk with him about the many things he has done in football, both professionally and as someone who has loved the game since being a child. So over to Steph and we hear from Remo. Wonderful to be back here and with with Remo. Everybody knows uh, his long and storied career. He knows where the bodies are buried. He probably buried half of them himself. And uh, so without further ado, Remo, firstly, I just want to ask you, uh, it's been a, a an intriguing, difficult, challenging year. Uh, you usually spend your time uh, tweeting and flitting between Sydney, Milan and London. How have you spent the last eight months? Uh, comfortably ensconced in the eastern suburbs of Sydney <laughs> is the short yeah, answer tough. to that. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting year, both from a football perspective and a business perspective, challenging in every conceivable sense of the word, Steph. Absolutely. And usually you're getting your European football fix at this time of the year, uh, which is a lovely segue into what this interview is all about because it's actually supposed to be 40 minutes of you talking about yourself. So you're going to struggle, but we'll, we'll, we'll get through it. Tell us where your football story started. What was your first football experience? Oh, um, ball boy at Marconi Oval circa <laughs> 1969, <laughs> Pre-National uh, Soccer League, of course, Marconi was playing in the lower divisions of the State League from memory. So Sunday afternoon, ball boy at a very modest Marconi Oval in those days uh, without grandstands and the like. Um, and they were great days because the ball boys got to eat uh, uh, and Elia and others uh, that are familiar with Marconi will uh, appreciate this uh, anecdote. But um uh, the ball boys got to eat uh, ravioli bolognese before the uh, <laughs> before the game uh, in the uh, in the restaurant, which was a big deal, and uh, we walked out with the side. So that was that was probably my first recollection uh, of uh, of football, Steph. And uh, we know about your long uh, career in the governance and administrative side, but what sort of player would you describe yourself as? I couldn't find a huge amount on your on your playing career. <laughs> well, I had a very modest career with Smithville Hotspurs. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I share that club with Harry Kill, by the way, in case uh, in case you were interested. But no, I didn't play. I didn't play a lot of football uh, as a young lad because I went to Fairfield Patrician Brothers, and I don't know if Ray Gatt's here in the room, but Gaddy would know that um, there were two uh, catechisms or two uh, two Bibles, shall we say, at Fairfield Patrician Brothers. There was the real Bible, and then you played rugby league. So I played uh, I played rugby league for the school. For most of my teenage, uh, for most of my teenage years, uh, yeah, no, you won't find too much on on that, mate. No, if I'd known to to call Patrician Brothers, I would have made that <laughs> call. Uh, tell us, you did, however, uh, have a lifelong passion for football. Yeah. What, what's your favourite recollection of a match you attended live, like the the highlight of your fandom, if you like? Well, 
I mean, having said I played rugby league uh, simply because I had no other choice, um, you don't grow up in an Italian household <laughs> without foot to, for the real football being an integral part of your life. Uh, my first recollection of a big game was uh, 1970 when my dad woke me up in the early hours of the morning because I had to listen live to the World Cup final between uh, Brazil and Italy, which Italy, of course, lost. Um, and uh, that was my first rec recollection of a big game. Um, I then remember that was that would have been, and someone will correct me on the date here, Steph, but that would have been probably June, July of 1970. We then, uh, my mother took my sister and I uh, as young, uh, young uh, kids over to Italy for our first obligatory holiday to meet the grandparents back in the old country. And my, my cousin at the time was playing in the junior teams of Udinese, who were in Serie C, third division in those days. But they played a friendly against Inter Milan at the old Moretti Stadium in Udine. And... I remember being blown away by going to see this third division game in, 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 in a city like Udine. Udine is only probably about 250,000 people or so and watching um, them play in a friendly after Italy had just lost the World Cup into Milan and that's where my love affair with Inter grew because in those days Inter Milan had Sandro Mazzola, Mario Corso, Boninsegna, Facchetti, I mean, the list went on and on and on. And I remember, even though that was a friendly, that was that was a big game that I attended. In Australia, probably my first clear recollection of a big game was when Santos visited here in the early 70s to play the Socceroos and Pelé, uh, Pelé played in that Santos team and the folklore of Ray Richards marking uh, the great Pelé out of the game uh, was was born. Um, so that was probably my early recollections of big games. Yeah, fabulous times. And, of course, you spoke about being at Marconi as a ball boy and uh, aside from the, the pasta, there must have been something else that attracted you to the club because, of course, you moved right up to be running the club. How did that come about? Well, I mean, I grew up in Fairfield and... The Marconi Club, as the Arpia Club, was for the inner West Italians. The Marconi Club was a pivotal part of life in Western Sydney if you um, if you grew up in an Italian household. Um, so, you know, the first opportunity uh, I had to become a member of the club, I did. I still got the original badge of 1963. I don't know how many thousand members they've got these days, but um, I've still got my original badge. Uh, attended the obligatory youth centre dances uh, and, and stuff in the Italian community. Met my wife at one of the youth centre dances, of course. Uh, served as a barman during university breaks uh, to get some some uh, the spare dollar. And then one year in 1984, um, um, there was a ticket being run by a number of people. Uh, and one of them approached me, um, uh, a chap, uh, a guy called Ron Cavanino. Ronnie came to me and said, listen, you're not going to get elected, but we're going to put your number six or seven on the ticket because we just think it'll look good if we have a, a young buck on the ticket. So I ran for those elections not knowing too much and the, the 
ripe age of 25, got elected unexpectedly uh, and sat on the board basically from 1984 to 1993. So I had 94, should I say, so I had 10 years, 10 years on the board there. Um, and then also by a bit of accident, um, Bertie Mariani's father, Cosimo Mariani, was the president in those days. Um, and he asked me to become chairman of the finance committee. And he said, well, and given that you're chairman of the finance committee of the club, I need you to watch how much they spend in soccer. So you become chairman of the soccer club as well. So <laughs> he gave me both responsibilities. So that's how it all started. And uh, you clearly enjoyed the the cut and thrust and the the different, well, the minutiae of, of governance of a club at that stage. Uh, Tommy Samani's told me a, a interesting and I found rather amusing story about how he was trying to sign Ned Zelich at Sydney Olympic and you had insisted that Ned come and have coffee with you at Marconi and Ned promised Tommy, he said, no, no, I'm not going to sign for them, I'm not going to sign for them. Lo and behold, he comes back and there's a photo of you and Ned holding up a Marconi shirt. How did you make that happen? Because he eventually went to Olympic. You had to bring this up, didn't you? I did. <laughs> um it was the greatest heist in Australian football, <laughs> I'm going to say that. So, of course, when you were running Marconi in those days, most of the NSL clubs were yeah, pretty impoverished to be to be charitable and Marconi had these rivers of gold that we had coming out of the, um, the licence club from the poker machines. So, no, and there were no salary caps, okay? So, basically, if Marconi wanted a player, we could, we could afford to buy them. Um, in fairness to the club, in fairness to people associated with the club, including Tony Labazetta, we were always told to exercise some restraint around that because otherwise the National League would have ended up being Marconi and no one else. The Zelich story came about simply because uh, I watched him play and I thought, along with Paul Ocon, uh, who we had in the Marconi ranks, he was... Um, he was the best young player I'd seen for a long time. Ned came to see me at Marconi. Um, we signed a contract. Um, well, <laughs> let me be clear, in, 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 in defence of Ned, I signed my side of the contract. <laughs> Ned said, and we had, by the way, we had John Taylor in the Daily Telegraph there and that added to all the pain of it all, but <laughs> I signed my side of the contract and Ned said, Ned said very cleverly, he said, oh, Rem, I hope you don't mind. I just got to take this home to Dad just to make sure it's good, but everything's okay. I'll sign it and I'll bring it back tomorrow or Dad will drop it off at the club. So we had the photo done. We had the media conference with the, uh, with, with the journalists. So I just thought, okay, he hasn't signed it, but no one would sit in front of a media <laughs> conference and say how happy they were to join Marconi with the number six jersey, the famous photo, and then not go through with the deal. What I had underestimated was that Tommy Somani and Mick Hickman were in the Marconi car park waiting for <laughs> Ned to come out of the Marconi club, picked Ned up, Ned assured them that he'd agreed but hadn't signed, and the rest is history. Olympic got him and <laughs> that was... Uh, that was the end of it. Yeah, never go head to head with the Wiley no. Scots, right? Uh, if we move on uh, a couple of years, the halcyon days of Northern Spirit, 20 odd thousand at North Sydney Oval. It was a roller coaster. It, it was up and ultimately down at the end. But what do you remember of 
those days, there was such a groundswell of support, particularly community sport around that club. Um, it was the best of times and the worst of times. Um, the first twelve, the first year of the Northern Spirit was, I think, extraordinary. Um, that twenty thousand for the Sydney Olympic game in North mm. Sydney Oval crammed, crammed into the ground, and I think we averaged about twelve to thirteen thousand um, for every home game. It was Friday night at North Sydney was something special. Mm. People were spilling out of the offices, into the pubs, and then walking up to North Sydney Oval to watch the game. We brought back Arnie and um, and Slater, of course. We had Ian Crook. Um, we had what we thought at the time a great underwriter of the uh, <laughs> of the team, Mark Goldberg, uh, and it was it was just an exhilarating twelve months. Unfortunately for us, uh, Mark Goldberg went into receivership four months into <laughs> four months into uh, being the major shareholder of the club. And then the rest is chronicled in history. Steph, um, Rangers came in, took over the club, didn't quite understand what they wanted to make it a mini Rangers. Mm -hmm. That's not what the club was built on. Um, and uh, sadly, uh, sadly, the demise of the club was uh, there in, in, in a few years' time. So, as I said, the best of times and the worst of times, unfortunately. Do you think, though, at that stage, and you also, of course, had Parramatta Power and, and Perth Glory competing in, on that stage, uh, they were three clubs in particular that stand out to me as being uh, riven along geographical lines, not nationalities. Do you think that in, in a different, you know, perhaps a sliding doors moment, if there had been more autonomy, say, and unbundling back then with more autonomy for the clubs, that they could have survived, and particularly Northern Spirit, could it have survived and even thrived in the current A-League era? Oh, I think, um, and I don't say this because I was involved, but I think many of the things that you saw subsequently with the A-League, I mean, I used to have a wry smile when they used to talk about, um, you know, innovative marketing uh, techniques being employed by various A-League clubs. The forerunners to that were clearly the Perth Glory and the Northern Spirit. Strong community attachment, strong football ethos. I mean, I don't know if you remember, Steph, the, uh, we had the grandstand down on one side was called Spirit Point with the mm. chance, and we had the grog-filled uh, <laughs> supporters down, down, the, down the other end. So really building a club around a football culture and a football ethos was very, was, was very critical uh, to us. I don't know. I think by 98, it was the 98... 99 season. So by 1998, I think the National Soccer League had run out of steam. Um, and as much as the Perth Glories and the Northern Spirits were trying to change the mindset of some of the other clubs, the other clubs were more in a um, survival mindset. So you had a clash of two competing mindsets, a mindset that said we need to be bold and aggressive and we need to chase new opportunities and markets, and then a mindset that was, well, we've been around for 25 years, you young buck, uh, and we're here to defend our turf. And there was no reconciliation of those two mindsets, unfortunately. So it just ran out of steam. I mean, let's be clear, you know, the National, and I will be the greatest defender, and I always am, of the National Soccer League, started in 1977. 
before the AFL and the NRL had even thought of the opportunity or the idea of a national competition. And it wasn't long ago, actually, Steph, and you might say, geez, you waste your time on weekends, but a couple of weekends ago, I was scrolling through, I was Googling some stuff on um, the original or the inaugural, should I say, National Soccer League meeting, which was attended by Frank Lowy and uh, Alec Pongrass and sundry luminaries uh, around the game at that time. And it was interesting to scroll through the minutes of that inaugural meeting of the National Soccer League and to actually pick up how many themes are still being talked about now, four decades later. It's, it's remarkable. So I, I think the, the, um, the pioneers of the national, so we owe a huge debt of gratitude to the pioneers of the National uh, Soccer League. They were extraordinary visionaries who, who put their hands deep into their own pockets uh, to build those national clubs. It was, what was that, three years after we'd competed in the World Cup in 74. Um, so they were heady days for the game. Um, so the fact that the National Soccer League or the national competition in its first incarnation ran 20-odd years, 28 mm. years, uh, is not a bad not a bad reflection on the people who who pioneered it. Yeah, here, here. Your weekends really go off, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, your period of time at, uh, as chair of Soccer Australia, uh, an interesting time for the game. We've had many interesting periods in the game. Uh, what's the highlight of those years for you? I mean, one that sticks out for me is uh, was it Ellen Rose? Soccer is in England. I think you're on the pitch with the likes Upton of David Park. Beck, Upton Park. Beg your pardon. <laughs> Sorry, Hammers. Uh, and you were on the pitch with the likes of uh, Beckham and Skulls and. Oh, Socceroos as well. That was a that was a fantastic night. So when I say on the pitch, he was congratulating yeah, yeah. Australia on winning one play. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a fantastic night and one of the um, yeah one of the high watermarks for me of Australian football to beat um, England, who coached by Sven Goran Eriksson and the likes of Rooney and um, Skulls and Beckham, Rio Ferdinand. David James, you know, one, you can list them one after another. To beat them 3-1 at Upton Park uh, uh, on that evening was an extraordinary. And, and, and that 2003 result, everyone sort of concentrates on 2006, our, our 2006 uh, World Cup accomplishments, and they were magnificent, don't get me wrong. But the seeds were sown in 2003 with that win, in my view. Um, Frank Farina was was our coach. Of course, he never got to taste the spoils of 2006, which I find uh, sad in many ways. But the seeds of our success in 2006 were set in 2003 on that night in Upton Park. I mean, we blooded from memory. Mark Bresciano came in uh, in that camp. Timmy Cahill was in that camp. That 2003 victory over England was was uh, unbelievable. Um, and was was a fantastic night to be part of. Absolutely fantastic night. Other highlights? Well, I mean, one of the highlights of that night, um, interestingly enough, I got um, I got a briefing from the protocol division of the English <laughs> FA, and the protocol lady said to me, "Look, you'll be seated next to um, the 
chairman of the English FA, a gentleman called, he was a magistrate at the time, Sir John Thompson, and you will have Sir Bobby Robson on one side and Terry Venables will be behind you. And we're not quite sure, but there'll be a member of the royal family there. We're waiting, you know, confirmation as to who will be in the in, in the box. And I went, wow, this is pretty good for a bloke from Fairfield to be sitting in a in a box with royalty. But she said to me, she and she counselled me very heavily. She said, look, in the unlikely event that Australia scores a goal, <laughs> please do not be too excited. So when Popper nailed the first one, <laughs> far post, okay, I just got up and I said, you bloody beauty. And I'll never forget Terry Venables was behind me because Terry and I had known each other through the Socceroos experience. Um, and Terry said, now, now, my son, just settle down. There's still a long way to go. So that was uh, that was a fantastic, uh, fantastic night. Um, other uh, Other highlights. Um, not necessarily that I was involved uh, in in, um, in in the game at the time, but you know, we mentioned earlier some standout games. Um, I remember in '78 going to the uh, Sydney Showground in those days to watch uh, the Socceroos play the New York Cosmos, mm. uh, and the New York Cosmos had Giorgio Kinalia, Franz Beckenbauer, I think Gunter Netzer, and Johan Niskens and all sorts of players in in that lineup. That was a that was a fantastic night. And I remember they couldn't control the crowd. There were people on the pitch. You couldn't you couldn't get your seat <laughs> because people so, someone had flogged your, your your ticketed seat. And but people sitting on the steps of the stand. That was a that was a fantastic fantastic night. More recently, I had the great pleasure of being in the stands in Kaiserslautern when we beat Japan in that infamous game in 2006 and I was there when we when we when Harry scored the goal against Croatia uh, a, a few weeks a few weeks later I didn't hang around for the Italy game I came back <laughs> I came back to I came back to Australia um so that they, they, they were highlights in more recent times um, not not to do with the FFA so much but some people in this room may know um, you know, I have the great privilege of acting as an advisor uh, on a project for AC Milan, which is quite ironic given I'm an interista. But anyway, um, I, uh, I've got the great privilege of working for the owners of AC Milan on a particular project, and that's given me uh, access and insight into into one of the great football clubs of the world and, and some of the people some of the people around it. And at the end of the day, I might be 61 years of age, Steph, but I'm still a groupie and I love <laughs> I love the fact when Maldini sits in a meeting and, and the like. So Absolutely. And, and consultancy is something that uh, you've certainly uh, done a lot of since perhaps those early days at Marconi, moving on to Spirit, and then if we come to the A-League era for the Newcastle Jets, and I know that you're working quite closely with Con Constantine at the time. Uh, how did you perceive the A-League in those days, in the nascent period? Well, that was an interesting time. Of course, I, um, I handed the keys to Frank Lowy in 2003. Just on that, did you do that willingly? Yeah, I, um, I had no compunction at all. There were some other directors at the time who had some difficulty with it. But look, the game... The game wasn't morally broken. There was still an enormous spirit of we can get this done and the like, but it was economically broken. 
and it needed a massive circuit breaker. And that circuit breaker wasn't going to come by dint of an annual general meeting, an annual election. It needed two things. It needed three things. It needed a suspension of democracy because one thing we're very good at in football <laughs> is we over-democratise everything, okay, uh, and, and democracy goes to our head occasionally. Um, so we had to suspend democracy. We had to bring in someone with the sort of requisite gravitas that could reach out to government and to the corporate sector to rebuild again. There was no one better place than Frank Lowy to do that. Um, and, and the third element was that we had to close down we had to close down the National League and start afresh. And Frank asked me to be on the um, establishment committee of the A-League, and I served on that committee with uh, Johnny Warren, Charlie Yankos, uh, Brendan Schwab, myself, um, and Andrew Kemeny. So that was a really exciting period where we, we sat down and tried to... Um, come up with a model that we thought could work. I'd have to say that like, like most things, you tend to compromise and perhaps some of the elements that should have been built into that model from the start were compromised, um, not for any political reason, but more a sense of pragmatism. Look, we need to, Frank was keen to get the thing up and running very quickly. And therefore there were some compromises. I mean, at the time, uh, the PFA had done, you know, one of the finest bits of research that has ever been done on the game. Mm. And they had a model for the A-League um, that probably should have been taken heed of a little bit more uh, when, when, we set up, uh, when we set up the A-League. But it was, uh, it was a great time. No one quite knew, <laughs> no one quite knew whether it would work or not. So, yeah, it was uh, it was exciting to be a part of that. And, and with uh, Newcastle Newcastle Jets, I'm talking about. Uh, is it true that you were trying to foster a relationship with uh, Newcastle United in the UK, and it ended up with you uh, and Con being in? Uh, was it the owners' suite at uh, St James's yeah. Park? I could write a book of stories on Con Constantine. <laughs> um, we travelled over. We travelled over to the UK. Uh, the A League hadn't started and. Um, Con had asked me to give him a hand in setting up the Jets and he asked me one day, he said, he said, Remo, who do you think we should have as coach? So I rattled off the sort of local names that you'd expect, Cozzy, you know, all sorts of people. Um, and he said, no, no, I need someone with profile. I said, well, who do you want? And he goes, who do you know in the world that's high profile? Yeah, Con was very scientific with his questions. <laughs> and I said, in in jest, I said, well, mate, if you're serious, let's go and get Venables. He goes, book a flight next week. So off we go to, um, off we fly to the UK. Now, the, the flight itself, and I'm sure Con won't mind me uh, recounting this, um, uh, Con hadn't been on a uh, an aeroplane uh, since he migrated from Cyprus in the early 60s. <laughs> so he had his office book us a couple of uh, uh, decent seats at the pointy end of the plane. And I'll never forget the uh, lady, the young lady from Thai came along with the drinks trolley and Con enjoyed his scotch. Right? 
and it was a you know it was an early morning flight in one scotch on the rocks and i said i'll have a mineral water um and the the, the thai hostess handed over the scotch to con and he pulled his wallet out Bless. and i said con <laughs> it's free mate all the way between here and london he goes all the way from here <laughs> to london and i said all the way he, he goes love you leave that trolley right here <laughs> so we got we, we got off at the other end i went i was going to sleep and i'd wake up and there's con either with a scotch or a red didn't sleep for 20 odd hours we had a meeting with venables in a hotel basically it was two or three hours after we landed at heathrow <laughs> I thought he's not going. He's not going to go on with this, surely. Anyway, we get the we get to the hotel. He made what I'd call a con offer to Terry, <laughs> which was knocked back very quickly. Um, and then we went off to watch Newcastle play Sunderland at St James's Park that weekend. Uh, not Sunderland, sorry, Middlesbrough, because Schwarzer was in gold. Uh, for, for Middlesbrough and I contacted Schwartzy and I said, listen, we're going to come up and watch the derby. Um, so we went up to St James's Park and Con um, didn't spend a lot of time watching the game, <laughs> much to the chagrin of Sir Freddie Shepherd, the owner of Newcastle United in, in the UK, because he was chewing Freddie's ear off about about a reciprocal uh, arrangement with uh, with the Jets in Newcastle. So Freddie didn't see the game, Con didn't see the game, and I didn't see much of the game. But uh, it was um, it was it was a it was a great time, and we went very close. To be perfectly honest, Freddie was very interested in doing a deal with us, um, but I I think Freddie sold out of Newcastle about a year or so later. So. My understanding is that the end of that event finished with uh, Remo and Con leaving the owner's suite and uh, Con turning around to this illustrious group that gathered inside saying, thanks, mate, bloody brilliant. That was awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Con, yeah, Con was very economical with his words. Good international uh, relations. Just on that, relationships are so important and we've seen that uh, in football time and time again. Uh, in the last couple of years I've been sitting on a sports diplomacy advisory council for DFAT yeah. and it's been intriguing uh, how the different sports respond to sports diplomacy and how they actually leverage their contacts and their relationships. And I truly believe that football has the biggest capacity to do this. Uh, what's been your experience with uh, perhaps where we're, we're underutilised? Undercooked. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't cook it enough. Um, yeah, I was having a... I was having a conversation with young Nick over there about this very subject uh, last week, uh, and in fact, with another, um, with an, an MD of a very large organisation on Wednesday night about why football, our football, is not in the forefront of sports diplomacy in this country, and I don't have a simple answer to your question, Steph. I've got a my own hypothesis on it. Um, I think we, we are at our strongest when we talk about our game in the context of the world game. We are at our weakest, in my view, 
whenever we want to provincialise the debate and move into a Me Too space with the NRL and the AFL. The AFL and the NRL, uh, uh, the ARU to a lesser extent, but let's just talk about rugby league and, and, and AFL, are magnificent sports, but they are largely provincial sports, okay? That's not to diminish their position in the sort of pantheon of Australian sport, okay? But they are provincial sports. We are uh, a truly global game where our rhetoric about being able to touch regions both economically, socially and in so many other uh, areas is real. It's not imagined. The AFL going to Shanghai to play uh, a game <laughs> is BS, right? Let's let's call it out. It is BS, right? Us getting involved in sports diplomacy, and if you just look at our region, yeah, you know, we're member we're members of the AFC. The AFC is split nominally into West and East. We're part of the ASEAN group of countries, right? Um, and we have a marvelous opportunity to reach into those countries to promote trade, promote geopolitical ties now, particularly in the context of what's happening between Australia and China and the region becoming more and more strategically important. We have that opportunity to do all of that in parallel with government policy without talking partisan politics here. Um, it, we have an opportunity to run in parallel with that. And the fact that you know, we're not doing it as much as or, or as aggressively as we should be is something that we need to lift our lift our game uh, lift our game on. And sports diplomacy brings about all sorts of other commercial opportunities. Mm -hmm. Corporates that want to run in parallel with you to to reach into certain regions of Southeast Asia uh, in in order to open opportunities, business opportunities, offices, or or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think I think what we've got to you know, we've got to get out of this provincial mindset which says, oh, the AFL are doing this, the NRL are doing this, we can't do this because they don't do this. We're football. We're football. We're different. We, we are global. We think differently. Uh, we touch people in a very different way. And let's not be apologetic about it. And I know I, I use it perhaps too often, but the one thing that's lacking in our game, in my view, Steph, is evangelism. You know, you've got to have an evangelical element in sport. It can't just be about governance, process, uh, a white paper, a strategic paper or whatever. That's got to be wrapped up and tied up in a nice bow called evangelism. You've got to get out there and, and spruik the passion of what makes our game very special, not close down the passion actually give it a turbo charge and that unfortunately is what afl and nrl do very well with a sympathetic yeah. media of well as well of course uh, do you think there's an element though and and as we come to the uh the end of your two-year uh, tenure on the new ffa board if we if we'd like to call it that do you feel that we tend to be too inward looking we spend uh, a lot of time not looking at evangelism and sports diplomacy and international relations we spend a lot of time looking at oh my goodness we need promotion relegation in a national second division well, 
Yeah, but I'd argue that national second division and promotion and relegations are conversations that are completely compatible with who we are as a football culture. That's a separate issue to whether we can afford it or not. <laughs> that 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 cost benefit study has to be done. You know, you you wouldn't be, uh, you know, you know, you wouldn't be a um, you wouldn't be doing your job unless you did that cost benefit analysis. But we should be having those conversations over here anyway, because it does delineate us from the other from the other sports. I think I I agree with you. I think, and I think the opportunity for change, and I'll I'll give him a plug, comes in the form of James Johnson. James is what I call a fair dinkum football person. He's played the game, represented his, uh, his, his country. He's worked in Australia, Asia, FIFA, and, of course, uh, with the City Group in, in England. He brings, he brings to issues an international complexion that has been lacking. Um, so to, to your question, I do think... Uh, and it is a frustration of mine. I make it. I make no apologies for that. That we tend to be too inward-looking, too provincialized in the way we find a solution to 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 a um, to a problem. James represents an opportunity to get out of that sort of provincialized mindset, take a, a far more uh, you know a, a wider lens in the, to 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 an issue, bringing that international experience that he's got. And guide hopefully with a very solid board um, the future of the game. Uh, the other thing, of course, we can't move away from, and that is, you know, we're stuck with a federated model of uh, of governance. Um, yeah, in the perfect world, if you and I were drawing up uh, the constitution uh, and starting from a fresh, uh, starting afresh, or with a clean piece of paper, moot point whether you'd move towards a federated model whether you'd start with a federated model. But I think, to be perfectly honest, I think we use that as a bit of a lame excuse sometimes as well, Steph. Oh, it's the federated model. The states won't support us on that. Well, that's where the, that's where the evangelism comes in, quite frankly. If you've got a vision and you've got a bit of evangelical zeal, you've got to bring them along with the journey. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think the inward-looking stuff can be our, our biggest problem. It's interesting you mentioned James Johnson because you two are bookending this Football Writers Festival, so uh, he will have the last word. Uh, but I think As there's, <laughs> I think there's been a lot of uh, uh, sort of renewed optimism, perhaps when when he came into the role, and you know we finally have a, a football person. There's been a lot of talk, a lot of committees, uh, two lots of principles, uh, or actually one lot that's been redrafted. What needs to happen now? You've had the benefit of seeing that from the the two year stint you've had on on the board uh, after the lower era. What needs to happen to affect real change, in your opinion, with all the experience that you've had? Wow, you've not got yeah. An hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's some big challenges for the game. Let's not kid ourselves. Um, the report that I commissioned as chair of the um, the football committee into men's and women's football, um, the performance gap reports on both men's and women's football in this country make for some concerning reading, to be to be honest. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're riding a wonderful wave with the Matildas now. Um, 
we're hosting the World Cup in 2023, which will be an incredible, incredible event. And uh, hopefully, um, hopefully uh, the Matildas will perform very, very well on that stage in our own backyard. Um, the Socceroos, of course, have come through the golden generation and are now starting to rebuild a new generation or well in the process of rebuilding that generation. But the development pipelines that sit underneath the, um, uh, the Socceroos and the Matildas and the statistics that came through uh, in the performance gap report, particularly with respect to the Socceroos, uh, make for some concerning reading. Um, and we need to spend a fair bit of time understanding why that pipeline isn't coming through with the, 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 the level of talent that we've seen in the past. So that's at a national t nationals team level. I think at an A-League level, um, the unbundling of the A-League, and I hate using that term, but the, the unbundling of the A-League was, and, and I can't believe this, remarkably seen by some owners as the sort of magic wand that will fix everything in Australian football. Autonomy of the A-League, I mean, I've been on about autonomy of the A-League for, you know, better part of 10 to 15 years. Uh, I think it's entirely appropriate that people who invest their own capital uh, into football clubs uh, have some self-determination in how that league is structured. But no problem with that. But I think the biggest question for the A-League is, and it hasn't been addressed, and that is what is its rightful place in the universe of, of football in, the, in our region? You know, we've got to find the right equilibrium uh, for, for the A-League. Do we want to be... Uh, one of the, the, the best domestic competitions in Southeast Asia, well, that'll require a fair bit of investment. If you want to go up against South Korea and Japan, for instance, you're going to have to sort of turbocharge the levels of investment required to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with those countries. Are we a development league of choice for European countries? I mean, I always use this analogy, Steph, and I'll probably end here, but we were having a discussion at a board level once, and I said, look, back in those dark days of the National Soccer League, <laughs> the, the, the founding fathers of those clubs didn't have the benefit of a whiteboard, okay? Uh, half of them couldn't speak English, so that would have been interesting, uh, them putting up the strategy in their own languages, but there was two very clear dividends that the game had. There was an economic dividend, which flowed straight to the club, and was called a transfer fee. So the clubs were highly incentivized to identify young talent, nurture that talent, and then at about the ages of 22, 23, M.O. Brett Hamilton was probably the eldest. He went at 25, but the range was anywhere between 20 to 25. You'd identify, you'd nurture, develop, and sell. Okay. And the economic dividend flowed directly to the club. And quite frankly, in the absence of those transfer fees, half the NSL clubs would probably have been insolvent. Okay. And then there was a football dividend. And the football dividend flowed directly into our national teams because those players went on to play in some of the best clubs in the world, in some of the best competitions in the world. And a correlation of that was 
our Socceroos climbing the FIFA rankings and we getting more competitive internationally. And I think we've got to get back to those simple, simple virtues of economic dividend to club, football dividend to our national teams and start doing more around what we need to do to, 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 to sort of induce those, those two dividends for, 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 I mean, the, the record transfer fee in Australia, and Vince Rajari will probably cor- correct me here, um, but still stands with Zelko Kalats, I think, you know, from Sydney United at 1.6 million Australian dollars. You know, those days of the mid-90s to the, well, the early 90s to the late 90s, there were some extraordinary transfer fees. But, but in those days, we were seen as a, a domestic competition of choice Okay, for many of the uh, European clubs that that were looking for talent. Mm. Maybe we've got to get back to that. We've got about 60 seconds left. Uh, Remo, just perhaps tell us, and of course your involvement in football is is not over with your your time stepping away from the the board this time round. When you look back in many years' time at your impact and involvement in football, what would you like to say your legacy is? Um. Oh, I don't know how to answer that. Um, I've had the benefit of seeing the game over four decades from an administrative perspective. So I've lived the game through four decades, which is sometimes when I reflect on that, I can't believe it. Um, so I've seen the game in all its iterations, in all its difficulties, and all of its inflection points. And, you know, I'd like to think that, um, you know, if I'm no more than a footnote when they write, uh, when they write the, uh, the definitive history of the game, that probably, you know, some of the, some of the experience that I'd learnt, that I'd assembled, should I say, over those four decades uh, was, sort of, was parlayed into into some uh, into some um, ideas and things from time to time. I mean, I don't know how to answer your question. I think we all get in this stuff not to, I mean, you know, the bane of my life is people that come into our game and then they leave the boardroom of whether it's the FFA or, you know, Soccer New South Wales or Football New South Wales or the Victorian Federation and never watch another football game again. I mean, I can put hand on heart. I've been watching this game since the 1970s as a kid. Um, I can still give you the starting lineup for the 74 uh, World Cup Socceroos side. Um, I remember the first Marconi side that won a championship, named the starting lineup of the 2003 game against England. So, look, we need to respect our true believers, okay? And we need to get more people who love football involved in the game, right? Because we are different. Um, and so I don't, I don't know if that's answered your question. I'll let others, I'll let others write that stuff. Rem, I can assure you, you will be more than a footnote in the annals of football history. Thank you so much for sharing part of yourself today and uh, giving me the privilege of, of chatting to you this morning. Thank, Thank you, you so you, much. Rem, Thank you.
It's always wonderful to hear from some genuine football people, isn't it? And that was the opening session of the 2020 Football Writers Festival that you just heard with Stephanie Brantz in conversation with Remo Nogarotto. And it set the scene, I think, for the two days that was to come. We're now at the end of our podcast, our end of our Football Insiders podcast for 2020. This time last year, they didn't exist. We hope that you've enjoyed what we've provided so far. And um, it being Christmas and the festive season, just a, just a note to wish you all uh, a Merry Christmas and a happy 2021. It's got to be better than 2020. I think everyone is looking forward to it and breathing a sigh of relief that it's just around the corner. To you and your loved ones, have a wonderful time and we'll see you in the new year. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fairplay Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.